I'm Josh Block, sitting in this week for Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Josh. Ross, last night's meeting began with the superintendent's report, which led to a really interesting back and forth about the exam school admissions policies. But first, the superintendent spoke briefly about an open house this past weekend at the West Roxbury campus concerning the proposed relocation of the O'Brien. That's right, Josh. There was a tour on Saturday with BPS officials and interested community members of the former West Roxbury Academy High School. This building has been considered as a possibility for the new O'Brien High School moving to West Roxbury. And essentially, the superintendent, in her opening remarks, stated that they're going to proceed with considering the O'Brien moving to West Roxbury Academy with some major renovations to the facility. Um, Still a lot of questions, Josh, about this, about how much money will it cost to renovate West Roxbury Academy, to house the O'Brien School, also around transportation issues, you know, how will students get there? Superintendent said, look, it it takes about 40 minutes on average for students to get to West Roxbury Academy. She actually said that's an average amount of time that students spend in transportation going to and from school each day. So that's pretty amazing that students spend about an an average an hour and 20 minutes in transit every day. And there's also some questions around, will there be a new commuter rail stop added to that space? Which again, there's not, not much detail around that. Interesting though, Josh, what we didn't hear was anything about Madison Park High School which is really the purpose, apparently, of moving the O'Brien to West Roxbury is not only to give the O'Brien a larger and renovated space, but really was to also renovate the entire Madison Park O'Brien campus into a brand new vocational school. We didn't hear anything about that. And Josh, also last night, we heard that there is a new dashboard released That's right. of all the facility reports for every school around BPS. We'll link to this in our blog, but it is really important, I would, I would argue, for families and interested community members, take a look, because our facilities are not in good shape, and these scores are quite alarming. And what's important here, Josh, also is this O'Brien-Madison Park High School conversation has all taken place well before this Green New Deal plan has been released. And so again, that raises questions. Why are we making facility recommendations and changes prior to having an overall report and plan for BPS facilities for the future? So after that, the superintendent spent much of her report discussing the exam school admissions policy. And let's get into that because that was a lot of the meeting last night. And it led to one of the more interesting conversations and frankly, one of the more heated conversations we've heard at school committee in a while. And so what led to this is member Brandon Cardet Hernandez last week and for months has been calling for the school committee to reconsider the admissions policy specifically as it relates to the 10 bonus points for schools that are economically disadvantaged. And last week, he called for this to be on the agenda this week. There was a request to discuss the exam schools at tonight's meeting. It was not added to the agenda, but the superintendent did address it in her remarks. First, I want to acknowledge the feelings and experiences of some of our families around exam school admissions. This can be an emotional topic for families because it affects the future for their children. Superintendent Skipper went on to say this. The one year of complete data we do have is revealing impacts that this committee the public, and my own team have raised as concerns that we need to understand further. Ross, what are these concerns that she references that she keeps hearing? 
Sure, Josh. So first, the superintendent is recognizing the concern around these 10 bonus points. If you recall, we have eight tiers, economic tiers. We have 125 seats, essentially, for students at each of the tiers for exam school seats. Students are assigned in, in order, essentially, from tier one to tier eight, with tier one being the lowest income and tier eight being the highest income across our city. If you go to a school with 40% or more students who are identified as low income, every student in that school gets 10 bonus points. And looking at the data discussed last night, it's clear that there's a real advantage to getting those bonus points. And in fact, only seven schools in Boston public schools do not receive the bonus points, as well as a number of other schools who are not in BPS, including Catholic schools and private schools, do not receive these bonus points. And the superintendent noted that there is concern that knowing that the 10 bonus points advantages students in getting into the exam schools, will there be less selection of schools that don't have the bonus points? The superintendent also noted that there is a circumstance in which even if you receive a perfect score on your grades and your MAP assessment, the highest score in all, you cannot get into one of the exam schools if you live in tier seven. So it is actually exclusionary. The policy is exclusionary because you actually need 100.2 to get into Boston Latin School if you live in tier seven. And if you don't have the bonus points, you only can get to 100. It's impossible for your child to get into Boston Latin School. And then we also heard from the superintendent that she's well aware that if you live in tiers, you know, one through five at least, it's almost guaranteed 100%. You have a B average, you get into an exam school. And the number of applicants increases dramatically in tiers six, seven, and eight. And so in fact, in tiers seven and eight, there's so many more applicants than there are seats. And the percentage of students getting in therefore decreases dramatically. Right. So she acknowledged all of these concerns with the policy. And we've heard these concerns from parents over the past year or more in school committee. And we've discussed it often on this podcast. Uh, but then she went on to say this. As policymakers, we must rely on sufficient data to understand a policy decision's impact. This body is focused on student outcomes and understanding the impact our policies and practices have on students. That is why the policy, as was voted, calls for a full review after five years. Now, Ross, this was a common theme we heard from the superintendent and her team last night, which is the policy says it needs to be evaluated every five years. We're only one year into the policy. Let's not make changes now. Let's wait four years. Now, we pulled up the policy, and here is what the policy says. It says, quote, the policy shall be evaluated and assessed every five years, end quote. Right. So, Josh, it doesn't say you cannot look at this policy until five years. Like, we're going to lock it in a box. You can't look at it until five years. In fact, it says it should be revisited at least every five years. There's nothing that says you can't look at this policy in year one or two if you see concerns. Right, Ross. It doesn't say only every five years. In fact, five years is the minimum it's setting by which it should be evaluated and assessed. But there's absolutely nothing preventing the school committee from looking at it every year, every couple of years, as long as they're also making sure that they're assessing it within every five years. Correct. And, and, and Josh, this is something that the superintendent is well aware of. And even Vice Chair O'Neill, who was on the committee when the policy was adopted a couple years ago, he said last night, look, this isn't written in stone. We can change this if we want to. Like, this is not written in stone, right? It, mm -hmm. The admissions policy to our exam schools has changed over the years. Right. So then, and then Josh, you know, Member Cadet Hernandez responded to the superintendent's comments about the five-year policy review with these comments. It feels like bureaucracy at its best. We can look at the data. 
we know there are problems and we're sitting here in front of the public saying, let's wait and see how bad this could get. Because we know it was literally impossible for a tier seven zero point applicant to be admitted to BLS as the cutoff was 100.2. So literally an unattainable score. So if you're a poor student who goes to one of those seven schools, you could not get in. The policy didn't work. Ross, you were just talking about this, but this sounds crazy to me that there are some schools where it's mathematically impossible for students to get into their first choice school. Even if they do everything right, even if they have perfect scores, perfect grades, they cannot get into their first choice exam school. And it's a flaw that was acknowledged by a lot of people last night, both in the public and on the committee. But it's also a flaw, as Mr. Cardet Hernandez points out, that can be easily fixed. We can have sober conversations of a policy that clearly isn't working when an entire category of people are ruled out of access to it, and we can continue to update a policy. I, it just sort of blows my mind. And then on some level, because I've been asking to have the conversation for five months, it also doesn't because we're here five months later where every single meeting I've been to over the last five months, I've asked for this to be an agenda item. So I'm frustrated and I'm sad for working class families who are going to one of those seven schools and don't get this benefit. It's a bad policy. It's a bad policy. And we know it, the data's in front of us. So I'm gonna ask some questions. What is the, what is the goal of the points? It is a great question, right? Where do the 10 points come from? And what is the goal of the 10 points? And we know the goal of the 10 points is really, it was the exam school task force way of increasing opportunities for students who are economically disadvantaged to gain entry into the exam schools, which is a laudable goal. But as Mr. Karen Hernandez notes, the policy was changed at the 11th hour. My understanding, I also wasn't here for this, was that there was a proposal that was given to us. And in the ninth inning, or the ninth hour, I am the last person who should ever do a sports reference, that that policy then was changed by the acting superintendent at the time. And Vice Chair O'Neill provided more context on what led to this 11th hour change, citing, quote unquote, outside sources influencing the task force. Here's what he said. Folks who follow the classes process closely know at the very end it became a little bit messy because some outside forces tried to get the task force to change their recommendation about one piece of it. They were going to recommend, I believe, that 20% be by merit citywide and then 80% be through the tiers. Mm. There were some other folks that had opinions that tried to assert themselves into the task force process, and the task force did not appreciate it. By the way, not committee involved at all. Task force did not appreciate it. They came forward with their recommendation that basically took away that 80-20 split and did an equal thing by tiers and added the points. So, Russ, let's recap that a bit. At the 11th hour, the policy was changed to be 100% by tier rather than 80-20, and they added this 10 points. Now, that happened a couple weeks before the final vote and after months of public process with this 80-20 idea in mind. But that wasn't the last time the policy was changed. The policy was changed again the night of the vote itself. And we've talked about this before. Just hours before the final vote in that same meeting, then Superintendent Caselius made a significant change to the way those 10 bonus points would work. As a reminder, in the proposed policy by the task force, all students at a school with 50% or more students who are economically disadvantaged would get the 10 bonus points. 
50% or more. But then the day of the vote, that was changed to 40% or more, which increased the number of schools in which every student would get the 10 bonus points. What that means in practice is every Boston public school except seven, except seven, Ross, ended up getting the 10 bonus points. Well, Josh, but it's also important to note here that Superintendent Skipper is saying, hey, you know, we had this really, this, this task force that worked for a really long time on creating this really important policy and they really dug into the data. We got to trust them. We got to let this play out over five years. Let the work stand. That's all this work that stand and we'll figure it out in five years. But really what we heard last night, Josh, was in fact, there was a completely different plan. You alluded to the 80-20. That was 20% of students, would ju- it would just be assigned by the top scores and 80% would be assigned by the tiers. That was the proposal. And then we heard from Mr. O'Neill that because of outside influences, the task force was upset. We're going to go just with the A tiers and we're going to add these points. The two biggest objections we've heard to this policy are the tiers and the points. And both of those policies came in the last two weeks of this right. six-month and, public and, process. And, and Josh, a lot of people you talked about these things, they say they're they're duplicative, right? And since the tiers and the points, you don't need both, right? And, and there's been a lot of debate around this. And in fact, Vice Chair O'Neill has said multiple times, I'm not sure how this may lead to unintended consequences, and we should look at this policy really closely and make changes if necessary. So Josh, Mr. Credit Hernandez points out over and over again, this means that students who are not economically disadvantaged across the city are still getting the bonus points because of the school that they go to, while students who are economically disadvantaged at one of the seven schools and all the other schools outside of BPS, that do not, they do not get the points and are being left out of the policy and can't get into their first choice school. Right. And Mr. Credit Hernandez also proposes what seems like a simple solution to this problem. And it's a solution he's proposed at meeting after meeting for about six months. Give the 10 bonus points based on the socioeconomic status of an individual and not of a school. But Monica Hogan, who is the assistant superintendent for data strategy and implementation at BPS, she says this just isn't doable. The state looks to see who's enrolled in our district, and they take that information and they match it against information that they get from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. So once the students are enrolled, we're able to understand who participates in those programs. Through the application process for exam schools, those students are not yet enrolled with Boston, and so we do not have that validation process with the state until they have actually enrolled in our schools. So Ross, she's saying... The data does exist on an individual level. The state has that data for every individual, but BPS doesn't get the data until a student is enrolled in BPS. So let's break that down. If a current BPS student is applying to an exam school, the district has that data. They, they know whether or not right. that student would qualify as economically disadvantaged. So it would be pretty straightforward to give them those 10 bonus points. That's right, Josh. We would know every student enrolled in BPS, if they're applying to an exam school, we would know that if they should receive bonus points or not receive bonus points. So then the only outstanding question is students at charter schools or private schools or parochial schools, students who are currently outside the BPS system but are applying into exam schools. Ms. Hogan is saying, we don't have that data, so it wouldn't work, but the state does. Right. So, I mean, Josh, but imagine a scenario where we actually ask the state and say, hey, we know you have this, these data. Maybe we ask parents for permission, like a release, to allow the state to give the data to the, the school system in their application process. The parent says, yes, you can release the data. The state releases the data to BPS. And lo and behold, 
They have the data they need to assign the points to the student. It doesn't require a lot of creative thinking here, Ross. We have the State Department of Education has this data, and the largest school district in the state wants the data. It seems like there should be an easy way to square that circle. Absolutely, Josh. Ross, throughout this conversation, we heard a lot of reasons from Superintendent Skipper about why they can't do this, why they can't at this point change the policy, make this simple change to the policy that seems like it would fix this problem that everybody agrees is a problem. First, she says, the policy says it needs to be assessed and amended every five years, and we can't revisit it right now. This body is focused on student outcomes and understanding the impact our policies and practices have on students. That is why the policy, as was voted, calls for a full review after five years. Yeah, I mean, and then, and then Josh, she says, we need more data to see if this is just an anomaly. By the way, we have multi-years of data. Here's what she said. We need more data to understand if something is an anomaly or a trend that needs to be addressed. And then, Ross, she says, well, we need to trust the task force. They created this policy, and we should trust the conclusion they came to. The task force held public hearings over five months, reviewed years' worth of admissions data, and listened to community input at dozens of public meetings. I respect that process and the hard work it took to get us here. She goes on to say, we don't have the data to give the points to the individual kids. And so, again, we don't have that level of data because we don't have that relationship with the state. Right. So she makes all of these points over the course of the night about why we just can't change the policy right now. But one by one, Mr. Cardet Hernandez pokes holes in each of these reasons last night. And at the end, he brings it back to the key issue, which is that these are real people impacted by this policy. These aren't just data points. These are real individuals who deserve to go to these schools and aren't able to do so. Yeah, my issue is any young person who's economically disadvantaged who doesn't get points. I don't care what school they go to. My issue is also any person who is not economically disadvantaged who gets points for going to school with economically disadvantaged kids. I think, yeah. Okay. Because we're not talking about school quality. I mean, if we were really going to do it, it's like I could have a conversation, which is you get 10 points if we're willing to stand up here and say, that's not a great school. And so like we think you get 10 extra points because we're sending you to a school that's of low quality. But the only thing we're saying is you get extra points for being around poor folks. That is bonkers. That is bonkers. Spot on, Josh. It seems to be bonkers. Uh, that's a new term for the exam school policy. It's bonkers. Uh, That's a new term for the exam school policy. It's bonkers. Bonkers. And this same sentiment, Ross, was echoed throughout public comment last night. Look at the policy. Make a decision. And then, at the minimum, make sure that the kids who lost out in the last three years figure out if they can get into ninth grade. Change the policy. Increase the number of seats. It's easy. Increase the number of seats at BLS. And then make sure that these kids get in. Um, I don't understand. I mean, why is we are all sitting here and talking about these things like statistics as if there are no real people involved? There needs to be some level of equity of people. And we heard from public commenters similarly questioning the 10 points, pointing out that 10 is just an arbitrary made up number picked at the 11th hour. And we should adjust it now that we have real data. So I think we should pause and just say, where did the 10 points come from? Why is it not seven or 13? My guess is it's arbitrary. I've heard no justification for it. Now, if a student ignored data that was available and turned it in unsubstantiated guess, they'd get a poor grade. And I think we should, we, the school district should do the same thing. Why would we continue to use an arbitrary value 
rather than use data that's there and iterate on it. Vice Chair O'Neill kept talking about unintended consequences. We saw those unintended consequences play out exactly the way people expected them to. And parents are saying we shouldn't have to wait longer to fix them. I don't have a year to wait for this data to be reassessed a third time. I have two years of data that show that this policy is inequitable, it is unethical, and it is targeted. This is a really good example of the district leadership protecting something or uh, for, for a reason we may not totally understand. It seems like we had agreement from every school committee member that this policy is flawed. Let's adjust the policy and make sure it has the intended outcome we are desiring, which is to increase the number of economically disadvantaged students into the exam schools and ensure they have equitable access to the exam schools. But we heard from the superintendent over and over that she was unwilling to look at this. And you gotta, you gotta ask why, Josh. Why is the superintendent so unwilling to want to look at this policy? It comes back to the first comment Mr. Credit Hernandez made, Ross. This is bureaucracy at its best. It's frustrating, Josh. The meeting then moved on and continued with a few quick votes. There was votes on some collective bargaining agreements with some smaller unions across the district that all passed unanimously. And there was a vote to actually adjust Boston Green Academy from a six to 12 school, grade six to 12, to grade seven to 12. And the rest of the meeting then moved on to focus on the 2023 MCAS results. And Josh, here are some main takeaways from the presentation. First, we have to recognize that there are a number of bright spots here with these data. Boston Public Schools has exited the bottom 10% of all districts across the state. Yeah, that was, that was good to see, Ross. It was great. The state is no longer saying they are in need of intervention as a district. And there's a handful of schools making really dramatic increases in student achievement. And it would have been great last night, Josh, to hear more about how those schools are having such dramatic impact on student achievement, because those are the examples that we should be figuring out how to expand across our school system. Yeah, Ross, I wish they had brought those school leaders to school committee and, That's and right. asked them, what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing differently? And what can we learn from you? And you know, last meeting, we heard from special education parents about how they're feeling impacted about special education across the system and about inclusive practices. And that was one of the most fruitful conversations we heard at school committee. It would have been great to hear from school leaders and teachers saying, here's what we're doing and here's how we're getting dramatic increases in student achievement. It would have been really important. And it was a missed opportunity. And by and large, Josh, students in all subgroups across BPS are making at least low average growth across the district. And here's what that means. Students who score about 50% on growth means that they make about a year's worth of gain. And in BPS, the average growth is in the low 40s. So we are seeing the majority of students across BPS make at least or almost a year's worth of growth. And so while we're seeing students make almost a year's worth of growth, and that's good, we're seeing some stabilization from the pandemic, where in, in the pandemic we saw dramatic decreases in student growth and, and achievement, we heard also last night, Josh, that there is particular concern around multilingual learners, especially students coming to the country in high school. They're making very little progress on language proficiency. And the district said, hey, we got to make this a focus going forward. We got to figure out how to see students making more dramatic growth in English language proficiency. Josh, it's important to note that the majority of the conversation around MCAS was a district's role in intervening and shoring up the basic instruction in schools. So basically what the district was saying is, we're going to double down. We're going to intervene more in schools and make sure they're doing the basic things in every classroom. And that one of the reasons we're not seeing more dramatic growth is because they're not teaching 
the basics well enough. And this was very clear about Josh. This is a top-down approach. This is the district will build itself up at the central office to then intervene in schools that they're not happy with in terms of performance. I think what's missing here, Josh, is really learning from those schools that are outliers, having great results, and learning from them. And the question being, is it are those schools having great results because central office is helping them with great results? Or is there similar conditions like great teachers, stability of leadership, a continuity of a focus in a school, engagement of families and community in the school? Are those the elements that are leading to great success? Or is it because central office is intervening in those schools? I believe it's probably the former. Right, Ross. And as you point out, there was year over year growth. So the data is trending in the right direction. But what we also saw last night is that the MCAS data is still below where it was pre-pandemic in 2019. And there was a lot of focus last night on making sure basic things are done in every classroom, stabilizing, recovering. There was a lot of language like that. Uh, But Mr. Cardat Hernandez asked what I thought was an interesting question, which is, what's the big idea? When do we get past stabilizing and recovering into progressing and advancing? Like, you know, I have been advocating for as long as I could, like pay students, particularly poor students, to go to school and you will compete. Even with low quality schools, you will get butts in seats. But like, what's our big idea? We had 430 million Nasser funds. Like, I, we probably have like, what, 100 million left? Like, what? what is the thing that's not just like a functioning school system, but like a recovery focused system? This is a great question. We're looking at this as how do we create stability? But we already had inequities prior to the pandemic. Then the pandemic expanded those inequities. And now we're trying to go back and say, let's just go back to what we were doing previously before the pandemic. That's not going to be game changing. That's not going to close gaps that we saw prior to the pandemic and that were increased over the pandemic. Like we had to do something dramatically different, Josh. I hope when we hear presentations about special education, when we hear presentations about multilingual learners, I hope when we hear presentations about these big issues throughout this year, members continue to ask that question. What's the big idea? That's right. And and Josh, we also heard a lot last night about chronic absenteeism. And the district was making the assumption that if we just get students to come to school, everything will be fine. Well, you know, before chronic absenteeism was such a problem, students weren't doing very well and there was still massive achievement gaps. So getting them back into school to simply do the same thing is not going to work. Also, I think we need to do something different to get students back into school. Like maybe there's a reason why students don't want to come to school. Superintendent Skipper said last night that she knocked on people's doors early in the year. And one of the students said, I don't want to go back to that place. I didn't like it there. And she said, well, we got to find other ways to engage that student into learning. Well, that may be the case for many students. And so we really need to be thinking what's happening in our schools, in our classrooms, and how do we entice students to want to come to school to learn every day. So Ross, Chair Robinson, tried to bring this conversation down to the school level. She tried to focus on not what the district is doing to address the MCAS data, but specifically what teachers and school leaders can learn and lean into from this data. Here's what she said. I'm thinking about what happens to me as a teacher. Year after year, we get the MCAS results back. How am I using the information or am I given information to understand year after year how my students are doing? Do I understand the places that I'm teaching and they are doing well in or the places that I'm weak? Because my question is, how can I understand what my impact I'm having when I then look at the scores that are not moving? 
she's absolutely right, Ross. It would be great to hear from school leaders and educators about how they're interpreting these results and what they're seeing on the ground and how they're planning to raise proficiency rates among their students. And Josh, at the end of the meeting, Vice Chair O'Neill says this. This is probably one of the most important presentations of the year, right? Because this is showing us our student outcomes. He calls this one of the most important presentations of the year. But Josh, it didn't even get into what's happening at the school level. There was nothing about what's happening in schools that perform well. And there's really no mention at all about what's happening in, in our lowest performing schools. So I want to talk about that, Josh, for just a moment. Because this is about students. This is about humans in our schools. And the numbers are really sobering. At Charlestown High School, in grades 7 and 8, 1% of students on the ELA 2023 MCAS met standards. 1%. 1%. Wow. 0% of students met the standard in math in 7th and 8th grade. Wow. At the King South End Academy, 3% of students met or exceeded standards on the ELA MCAS, and 5% met or exceeded standards in math. At the Frederick Pilot Middle School, 6% of students met or exceeded standards on the ELA MCAS, 3% of students met or exceeded standards on the math MCAS. At the Lee K-8 School, 7% of students met the standard on ELA, and 2% of students met the standard on math. At Brighton High School, 9% of students met the standard on ELA, and 3% of students met the standard on math. At Orchard Gardens K-8 School, 9% of students met the standard in ELA, 5% of students met the standard in math. At Young Achievers K-8 School, 9% of students met the standard in ELA, and 8% of students met the standard in math. Josh, these data are staggering. Mr. O'Neill is right. This is an important conversation. One that did not have enough depth. And I hope that they continue to have this conversation at a deeper level in future meetings. And that's what happened last night at school committee. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your student, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.